0: Forever!
1: Dog! Just between us. Hey!
2: Just between
3: us. Hey! Oh, yeah. Hello! I'm Allison
0: Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and currently in, in moderate pain. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and I presume we're gonna be talking about Allison's knee surgery right now. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I had I
3: had major knee surgery last week, but I did pick it as the topics for this episode because I wanted to deep dive, baby. Are
0: you okay? Oh
3: yeah, define okay.
0: Okay, that's what someone says when they're not okay. <laughs>
3: No, I'm doing a lot better than I was a few days ago, but I actually, I wanted to, to start this episode with a check-in with you because Why? I heard that, that your parents met Mal's parents.
0: <laughs> wow, this is exactly the type of thing that you do want to hear about. <laughs> of course I do. <laughs> yeah, we went down to Florida and my parents met Mal's parents.
3: And this is your partner of, of how many years? Almost
0: Three? Three? Going on three years. Yeah. yeah. It, I was incredibly nervous. They all have sort of different vibes. Mm-hmm. You know, Mal's dad's a very tough guy. My dad is a slight effeminate <laughs> hippy dippy man. But you know, we sat down and of course, like, we call it Jewish geography, where you just immediately start talking about other Jewish people you all know. That happened right away. I didn't realize I forgot that like three out of the four of them are New York Jews. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of, oh, where did you go to college? Brooklyn. Oh, who do you know in Queens? Like that kind of thing, which was great. Also, like my dad and Mal's dad actually did get along. So we went to this seafood restaurant, which is actually the seafood restaurant that my mom told my dad she was pregnant with me at. (gasps) Yeah. And Mal's parents used to go there a lot. Also, like, again, like a thing with New York Jews is that they love to hang out in Florida. So both sides of the family had, you know, had been hanging out in Florida since the 70s. My parents the whole time or my dad the whole time. But Mal's parents, you know, going down for vacations a lot. So is that what it was?
3: They had gone down for vacation and you went there at the same time so everyone could meet? Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, Yeah. they, They don't live in Florida, but they had gone down there to visit and we were like, oh, let's fly out me and Mal and this will be a good opportunity for them to meet. Uh, like at a certain point, we were like, why did we want them to meet so bad? But I guess like in in a precursor to some sort of engagement, engagement marriage, marriage, life partnership, <laughs> <laughs> something like that. It, it was really nice. And actually, like it got Mal's dad to open up a little bit because my dad is so... like open and just talks about so many things so freely that we actually like watched Mal's dad just start talking about stories that he had never talked about before which was super interesting and Mal really liked that we went and got ice cream at this really nice place called Jackson's so like I thought we were going to be at this seafood restaurant and then just be like okay we did it but we went to a second location that's huge second location is huge I know and then they all took a picture together oh my god I know. It was like, I was so stressed. And then, you know, my parents, they're wild cards, but they were actually on very good behavior this whole trip, which is sort of shocking. That's wonderful. I know, especially my dad. He was on really good behavior. I mean, he still did his typical things. like He was like, (laughs) he does this thing where he just assumes you want to do what he wants to do. Mm -hmm. And like, he lures you in by thinking that, He's doing something nice for you, kind of. So he was like, hey, do you want to go get a a sub at your favorite subs place? And I was like, oh, my God, that's so nice. Like, yeah, I would love to. So we go and get a sub. I get back in the car and he's like, "Okay, so these are the five errands we need to run. (laughs) And I was like, no, what? No. Melissa's nodding. She's clearly been tricked as well. (laughs) Yeah. He like tricked me into like going to get his car detailed and going to the the CVS and all stuff. And I was like, how did I not see this coming? (laughs) So, and he doesn't ask. He doesn't say, do you want to? Do you have anything else going on? Nothing. So then I'm just like along for the ride for like the next two hours while he does errands with no no question of like, does Gabby want to be here? Is Gabby having a good time? But like, and then Mal was like, you got tricked by a sub. And I was like, they're really good subs. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I'm so glad that it went well and that it's also over that you did it. It's out of the way.
0: Yeah. And it was good talking to my dad, like, I guess even him kidnapping me, which he loves to do, is getting that time to talk to him a bit about, I assume he knows what's going on with like my mom. And then sometimes he'll be like, wait, what? Like she did this, she did that. And I'll be like, "Where?" I literally to his face went, where you been, man? And he was like, I don't know. I don't pay attention. And I was like, yeah, I know. That's wild. Yeah. He, he had no idea. And that certain things had, had happened that had upset me. No idea. Oh, well, at least you got to tell him. And I got to spend a lot of time with my aunt and uncle, which is great. And Mal loves my aunt and uncle and they, and they love them. So Mal has a new album coming out called Ain't It Nice. And also on March 8th, the music video that I directed for Mal is coming out. So check that out. But so we played the music for my aunt and uncle and they really liked it. And my uncle was like, oh, thank God. I was sure I was going to hate your music, which, okay. (laughs) And then they were both like, we really love it. It's like, it's like Neil Young. It's like Tom Petty, whatever. Which was very sweet. And Mal really loved that my aunt, when we finished the record, my aunt went, out of sight, man. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. It's really cute. (sighs) (laughs)
3: Anyway. This is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice.
0: Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. Groovy, out of sight. We were like, is out of sight better than Groovy? <laughs> and they were like, yeah, on the scale. Yeah, out of sight is better than Groovy. I was like, oh, thank goodness. Oh, They're like, Groovy's still good. That's huge for Mal. I know. And my uncle was a concert promoter back in the day. And he was telling us all these stories about how he owed so much money to the mob because they would try to throw these hippie concerts And the cops in the city would come in and say, actually, we don't want the hippies here. But they didn't want to say that. So they would raise the insurance to like insane levels. And then my uncle would be like, well, fine. And he would borrow the money from the mob (laughs) to pay off the insurance. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then I said, oh, did you make the money back from the concert? And he was like, no. (laughs) super fun. Well, we've got a great episode for you guys today. We're going to be talking to Dr. Shelly Bomek all about burnout. And later we'll be
3: deep diving into my knee surgery, which I'm sure you're all just so thrilled to get to do.
0: Oh, poor baby.
3: (laughs) But first, we have got to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means. Hit it international question international question international question anonymous washington dc nice our nation's capital our unrepresented capital the district
0: of columbia (laughs) okay
3: (laughs) dear gabby and allison i have been a longtime follower and listener and i really appreciate all you two do I'm so happy to see all the content you both are creating right now and listen to JBU religiously. Hashtag bisexual wink. Woo! I'm sure you do get lots of emails, but I thought I would give it a shot on some advice I am seeking. My question. How do you approach being in a long term relationship with someone that has a different financial background?
0: Oh, Lord. Goodbye.
3: I don't want to talk about this. (laughs) (laughs) TLDR. My partner and I have been together for four years. We met freshman year of college and both recently graduated. He is kind, patient, communicative, and I really love him and being around him. We are currently long distance due to my job and him still being in grad school, but I have faith we will both be able to relocate in the next few years. So far, we get to see each other regularly, so it is going well. We are both 23 years old, and this is my first serious relationship. While I am not particularly money savvy, I am lucky enough to come from a family that gave me financial literacy. I currently have a full-time job and was able to graduate college debt-free. A huge privilege, I know. I am in the process of learning how to save, invest, etc. Shout out, Bad With Money Pod.
0: Oh, who hosts that? (laughs) Me! It's my show.
3: It is. I knew you'd love that. My partner has a different life experience. He has student debt, not a lot of financial literacy because of how he was raised, his family doesn't believe in discussing money with him, and generally faces some money anxiety. As I've been getting serious about my own finances and the relationship, I have found myself worrying about his lack of interest in understanding his own financial future. I know that my position in understanding mine is a product of my privilege, but I can't help but wonder what our future may look like if we differ on this. By lack of interest, I mean that he has mentioned he doesn't really know what his debt situation is, and because he is still in school, he doesn't have savings or income, but mainly relies on his parents' financial decision-making. I already have some relationship anxiety. I often question how you know if you're with the right person, etc. But I've been working through that, so my current anxiety feels more practical. Is it my place to opinionate on his financial situation, encourage a plan, or would my unsolicited thoughts be inappropriate? I know we are both young, but we have also been together for years, so I wonder where I should stand. I'm not sure when it is the right time to get serious about a relationship. Is this just capitalism getting to me? Thank you Mm. so much. Your podcast has really helped me in times of need and also in all times. P.S. Currently saving for a dog and planning to start fostering this
0: year. Wow. It's really hit all the parts of things that we love. Shouting out my podcast, fostering dogs. (laughs) Uh, You take this one. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) <laughs> so here's the thing. My show is called Bad With Money, right? And when people see that, they think that that means people who are low income or poor or people who don't have money, right? And over the years I've done the show, I've realized that bad with money does not mean people struggling with money necessarily necessarily. It means people who don't take an interest in what's going on with their money. It means so you can be incredibly rich and still be bad with money. A great example of that is in Rachel Sherman's book, Uneasy Street, where she talks about really wealthy people in New York City and how, you know, this one woman in the book is like, how did I spend $65,000 this month? That's so weird. Um, and their family's like, you know, billionaires, millionaires. And that, I would categorize that person as bad with money, right? Even though they don't even, they blink and $65,000 leaves their bank account. So the thing is, is that like, is it a problem that he comes from a background with financial, with no financial literacy? Slightly. Um, Is it a problem that he's uninterested? Yes. Because the thing that screwed me over the most as a person who, who does come from like a low middle class background And not even that, just parents who also seem uninterested in learning about money and financial literacy and also passing that on to me in any way. The problem is burying your head in the sand. The problem is I never looked at my student loans. I never looked. I knew they existed, never looked at how much they were, never looked at the interest. I would get bills in the mail, throw them away. I didn't want to know. And that is tied to anxiety for sure. The first time that I actually sat down and went through my finances, it took three days three whole days. And I sobbed the entire time, hysterically cried. And I still cry when I have to deal with stuff like that. I, I still, you know, it's getting so much better because it's a muscle memory. You practice, you start like opening bills and reading what they say and, under, and, and words and phrases become more familiar to you. Or you look at your accounts and you can like make sense of what they say. I didn't know really anything about interest rates. I start looking at my um, student loans and I realize, oh, this one actually has like 14% interest versus this one actually has 3% interest. Interest was not a word I I really knew what it meant at all before I started doing that. But now, like six years later, when I look at something, I can say, okay, here's the interest and that's what it means. Because over time, the things that were foreign and scary and you hadn't really seen them that much or engaged with them that much suddenly become more of a a part of your life. And, And, you know, even the word investing, even knowing that your retirement is not saved, quote unquote, it's invested, which is what screwed a lot of people over in the financial crisis in 2008. They didn't realize that their money wasn't just put away in an account. Their money was actually being invested in the stock market. So there's like a lot of words that Um, are really scary. So for him, if he's never encountered anything like that, if he's he's never heard any of these words, I didn't even know the login to some of my accounts. So I can understand for him getting started when he has no familial background in that and when he's still in school, I totally get that it's like you're frozen. You can't even start. You can't even think about it. You can't even engage with it because it just seems so overwhelming. But the big red flag is you have to. (laughs) You must. Yes, we live in a capitalist society. We live in a corporatist society. Yes. Unfortunately, within the system that we live in, you can't just ignore it. You can work politically against that kind of thing. Absolutely. But you still have to, in your personal situation, engage with what is happening with you money-wise. So the problem is not that he has these problems. The problem is that he's completely uninterested. And let me tell you, relying on your parents when you know your parents don't have financial literacy is a real gamble. And I mean that literally. So I think the other part of this question, which perhaps Allison is more, you know, has more experience to answer is like, when do you step in in your partner's flaws? (laughs) You know what I mean? I think there is a world in which he completely resents this. I have, when you are the person who has less money, you know, Mal and I have this weird thing where I make a higher income than Mal, straight up. But I don't have parental support and Mal does. So it evens out in this way where like I pay my share and Mal pays their share and I truthfully... You know, it it took a while to get to like, it's okay that I pay two thirds and Mal pays one third, even though in my head, sometimes I'm like, I don't have, my income is higher, but I don't have, you know, so like, it is a very hard thing in relationships. And until social media became more popular, money was the number one reason for divorce. Now it's infidelity, but, (laughs) you know, resentment grows so intensely and people get so defensive. When I bring that up to Mel, forget it. Ooh, forget it. Yeah. It really opens up a lot of defensiveness. However, this does affect you. Like this is something that affects you. Yeah. I mean, it's tricky,
3: right? And, And so much of when to bring it up and how to bring it up and how quickly it needs to be resolved has to do with the context of your current relationship. You've been together long enough where
0: you should talk about it
3: right but i would also say you're also young right and so you're not you're not having shared finances yet which is great you doesn't seem like an engagement or marriage is like right around the corner for you guys which is great because it gives him some time to figure things out but it is absolutely like gabby was mentioning it's absolutely valid for you to have these concerns i think what starts happening now is you starting to say i am thinking about our future it is so exciting to think about our future but in order for me to ever feel comfortable with us combining finances, which is what I would want in a life partnership, I feel like it's important both for you as an individual and for us as a couple for you to maybe have a better understanding and handle on your finances and financial health. The initial reaction to that might be, I'm 23, fuck off, I've it's fine. Who cares? I'm 23. You know, like a 23 year old brain. Not even brain. I'm
0: 23, but like it could come off condescending or like, oh, well, good for you in your privilege that you can do this. You right. know, also, you don't you don't ever have to combine finances, even if you do yeah, get married, that's true. but you still take on their debt, right? Yes. And if you want to buy a house together and all these things, it absolutely will affect you, even if you don't ever have a, a joint bank account. I think maybe there's a way to be supportive where you sit with him while he, like even the the scariness of opening your student loans and seeing what your debt is, if you're like sitting with him, maybe. I think acknowledging at the
3: beginning of the conversation that this is so uncomfortable, acknowledging saying it is really uncomfortable and intimate and vulnerable to talk about finances. I don't want to have this discussion, but I feel like, because I am so invested in our relationship and I'm invested in you, I think we have to have this discussion, even though I don't want to be talking about it either because it's very uncomfortable,
0: <laughs> you know, We're just like I care about you and I don't want. Right. I don't want you to in two years be so upset and be like, why didn't I look at this? My interest is like 14 percent, you know, like I think it's like out of care for, for you.
3: Right? What are the intentions behind this discussion? And and I think when the intention is I want to spend my life with you and I want us to be set up to be in a good place so that money doesn't become a big issue in our relationship that's a place of love versus judgment or you know but mm-hmm. the thing is like Gab said you can't control how he's going to react to that mm-hmm. right so he might react to it thinking it's condescending he might react to it with anger he might shut down he might get defensive those are things that you can, cannot control but all, all you can control is initiating the conversation in a safe environment setting the stage for the the talk in a certain way making it clear what your intentions are and then also as we have said a thousand times on this show allowing for there to be multiple conversations around it Uh just because this initial reaction might be we're not talking about this I don't want to talk about this I'm watching you know like Uh that doesn't mean that that will be the final conversation and luckily again you have the gift of time And so if Mm -hmm. it takes six months for him to come around to talking about it, that's okay. But I do Mm -hmm. think that you need to, you know, how your partner handles conflict and how your partner handles uncomfortable topics and situations is very revealing about them. And so if you bring this up and over months and months, there is no change. If he grows resentful, if it becomes a topic you're not allowed to talk about, those are some red flags. But if at first it's just, uncomfortable if at first it's not as productive as you would like if it takes him some time to come around to it that's all okay and and to be expected in a lot of ways but you you can't give it you can't be two years from now and and still not be allowed to talk about his student debt if you want to have a life partnership with this person
0: and I think you can come at it with non-judgment and compassion and just be like look I have this background it's not because I'm smarter than you it's not because I lucked out Mm -hmm. like it's truly like not something that I have over you that I'm better than you about. And let me help you. I happen to luckily have the background and the terminology and the information and we're a team. So let me share that with you. That team mindset is so helpful. And it's how you should approach
3: things when you're in a committed partnership. That what's Mm -hmm. what's good for the the goose, is good, goose is good for the gander. Goose is good for the gander. I'm so sorry he said that. Anyway, hopefully that was helpful. If you want to submit your international question, you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's p o d at gmail.com.
0: Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Dr. Shelly Baumick. Stay tuned. Turtles All
1: the Way Down is the acclaimed number one bestseller by John Green, author of The Fault in Our Stars and Paper Towns. Turtles All the Way Down is now streaming on Max. NPR named the novel a, quote, sometimes heartbreaking, always illuminating glimpse into how it feels to live with mental illness. Aza Holmes never intended to pursue the disappearance of fugitive billionaire Russell Pickett, but there's a $100,000 reward at stake, and her best and most fearless friend Daisy is eager to investigate. So together, they navigate the short distance and broad divides that separate them from Pickett's son Davis. Aza is trying. She's trying to be a good daughter, a good friend, a good student, and maybe even a good detective, while also living with the ever tightening spiral of her own thoughts. Turtles All the Way Down is a brilliant novel about love, resilience, and the power of lifelong friendship. As someone with OCD, it is so wonderful to see OCD represented in an incredible book. I think it is so important that we talk about mental illness both in our own lives and through narrative. Buy your copy of Turtles All the Way Down in stores today and catch the movie streaming on Max.
3: Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial
0: segment known to all of podcasting, Top Questions. This week on the show, our guest is Dr. Shelly Baumick, who is the founder of Platform Wellness, a corporate wellness practice dedicated to helping women with burnout. Hello. Hello. Hello, everyone.
2: How are you today?
0: Oh, good. Thank you for coming.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. <laughs>
3: I am too, because I'm I'm in a, a program studying clinical psychology. And one of the things we've touched on in so many different classes is burnout and how to avoid burnout as, you know, future clinicians and also just as regular humans. And so I think to start off, like, how do you personally define this like kind of vague term of b- burnout?
2: Right, right. So the definition of burnout was actually proposed by the WHO in 2019. So they talk about burnout being an occupational syndrome. So something that occurs uh, because of chronic workplace stress. And in particular, there are three main characteristics to burnout. So the first one is decreased energy, so feeling drained and depleted, The second characteristic is negativity or cynicism related to the work that you do. And then the third part of the definition is basically reduced productivity or efficiency related to your work. Those are kind of the three hallmark findings of burnout. Can we just talk a little bit about your background and what led you to this specialty? Sure, sure, yeah, definitely. So so I'm a preventive medicine and lifestyle medicine physician. I'm based here in New York City, and my practice specifically focuses on burnout, uh, particularly with women of color. This is something that I'm really passionate about, mainly because of my own experience with burnout and with mental health issues. Mental health issues are something that I've dealt with on and off throughout the years ever since my mom passed away from cancer when I was in college, I think that would for me, that was kind of the the triggering event. But in 2020, just before the pandemic, you know, really hit the U.S. and before we all went into lockdown, I found myself in a pretty bad place. And the worst part was that I didn't realize it. You know, I didn't realize where I was until literally standing at the edge of the subway platform one Friday evening rush hour, you know, asking myself if I should push myself over the edge and that moment for me was pivotal you know it was i had never experienced anything like it before it was so scary and so you know to have stepped away from that edge literally, figuratively, that took a lot. And I'm one of those folks who I was so thankful to go into lockdown right after that, because I truly needed that time and that space in order to heal. And so it was during during that time, during that recovery, that I came to realize just how powerful your mindset is when it comes to your health and well-being. I like to say that mindset is the best medicine for burnout because, again, just personally, it was transformational for me. And so I want to make sure that I pass this message on to other women, to other women of color. And yeah, I want to make sure that no one else has to get to the edge of whatever platform they're standing on. It doesn't, you know, you don't have to go to that extreme. So that was the reason for starting the practice and doing this work.
0: What are the specific problems women of color face? um when you say you you specialize in women of color and burnout
2: yeah yeah you know so it's not that there's necessarily a specific problem that i that i address in the practice itself because burnout can look different for everyone but the reason why i you know choose to focus on women of color is just because of my ability to be able to create that safe space for someone to you know get the care that they need for me you know during my recovery I realized just how powerful colorism was um, when it came to fueling my burnout. I'm South Asian, and in our culture, if you have dark skin, you're considered less than someone with fair skin. And at a very, very young age, having dark skin, I absorbed this messaging and I then interpreted that to mean that I was not enough. And so because I have dark skin, because I'm not enough, that meant that I had to go above and beyond in anything that I did in order to compensate for this. So whether it was doing really great on a piano recital or getting, you know, an A in social studies or, you know, whatever it was, I just kept pushing myself and pushing myself. And I mean, literally, I pushed myself so hard that I ended up on that edge of that subway platform. So, you know, for me, it, it has that personal, um, there's that personal tie to the work as well.
3: This is so complicated to, to get into, but, you know, we've, we've talked a lot on the show about the difference between changes that the individual can make for their mental health and changes that are impossible for the individual to make because of the systems that they're stuck in. And so I'm just wondering, you know, if you have a, you know, a single mom who has three kids, who has to work the night shift at a grueling job, who can't afford to lessen their workload in any way due to financial reasons, you know, how do you address something like burnout in a a potential client like that?
2: Right, right. No, it's really important to consider one's health and well-being in the context of what they're dealing with socially in particular. You can't ignore those social factors because they, again, they have a big impact on your health. And, you know, for me, I try to tell people or, or you know, have them realize that there is agency. You know, you do have control, but it might not be control the way that you think. It, it, you know, a lot of times, it's not possible to control a lot of these external factors, you know, whether it's related to work or or at home. But what we can control is how we how we interpret these external factors, and then how we respond to them. I've talked about the cognitive triad on the podcast, just in terms of how your thoughts lead to your feelings, and then your feelings lead to your actions. And so going back to those, going back to the root, going back to those thoughts, those limiting beliefs, those dysfunctional beliefs, being able to kind of tease those apart to rewire the way uh, the way that you think. That's where the first step is in terms of control or just being able to handle the daily stressors. That's where I start a lot of my work with the folks that I work with.
3: And what would that look like? You know, like if you are burnt out simply because you have to do too much, what kind of changes can you make to your mindset to, to help with, with these things that you can't control?
2: I think the first step is to figure out what those limiting beliefs are. And it's really hard. I mean, I, I'm thirty. 30- six years old now, it took me 35 years to figure out that this, you know, that the colorism that not being enough was was the reason why I was dealing with what I was dealing with. So yeah, being able to first identify those beliefs, and it's, it's a lot of work, right? There are simple exercises that can that can help uh, help you to kind of dig deeper and figure out what those beliefs are. One that I like to do with folks is the five whys or sometimes the seven whys. So being able to, you know, if you have a thought, than just being able to ask yourself, okay, why do I think that? And then answering the question again, and then asking yourself why again, and going through those rounds of why. Typically by the, by the fifth time or the seventh time, you get to, in most cases, what that foundational belief is that's kind of driving everything else. So yeah, that's, that's a simple exercise that I do. Another one from Byron Katie actually is, is the four questions. And the first question I think is the most powerful, and that's, is it true? you know the thought that you're having is it true can you 100% absolutely know that it's true and a lot of times the answer is no the, you know that thought it's not fact you know everyone else around us wouldn't wouldn't say okay this is fact this is you know we're going by the books here but yeah that's that's where you start to get that opening that's where you can start to say okay if it's not true then what else could be true? What else could be possible? And, and so slowly from there, you can kind of work your way forward.
0: In terms of burnout, getting more and more attention, you know, it's interesting when we were talking about you as a guest, because my concern with burnout is that it's just like a corporate phrase used to make sure that people are their most productive at the expense of their mental health, almost like I'm not gonna give you health insurance, but here's a yoga class. Like, can you, you just nodded and smiled. Can you, can you, do you have a response to that? I feel like you just, you just smiled like you absolutely do.
2: <laughs> I do, I do. So, as a physician, I've been hearing this term burnout for a really long time now. You know, we talk a lot about physician burnout and just burnout in the healthcare industry. I almost feel like it's a euphemism. You know, it's it's to kind of cover up the fact that people are probably dealing with things that are deeper, like depression, like anxiety or, or something else, you know. But it's, I, I'll speak for my profession, I'll speak for healthcare specifically, you know, in our industry, it is very hard to come forward with that kind of diagnosis, right? There's so many oh. professional implications. I mean, even with me, at first I was really hesitant to tell my story. The reason why I ended up deciding to share it is because I realized, okay, if I'm a physician, and I'm nervous about coming forward and talking about something health related, then think of how many other people there are out there that, you know, are holding on to their stories and don't feel comfortable sharing either. You know, there's so much power in being able to bring these to light to talk about these issues. And so, yeah, for me, I feel like burnout is, you know, it's just kind of like there's deeper stuff to talk about. And we're just kind of slapping, slapping this on and kind of trying to package it all in one beautiful corporate wellness box. And you, you just can't. There's, it's, it's more complicated than that.
0: So do you think like it's something that maybe corporations use to avoid people using like EAPs or, you know, like employee assistance programs where you can get therapy or I don't know. I just worry that like it's this term that you're right, that people are like, yeah, our employees are suicidal, but it's burnout. (laughs) Let's not improve workplace conditions. Let's just make sure everyone gets free beer on Friday night. (laughs)
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I I used to work at an executive health firm here in New York City. So I used to see a lot of stressed out people, a lot of stressed out patients come through my doors. And it was so surprising to me because a lot of folks didn't even realize what resources their companies had available to them. As the physician, we we worked kind of in that employer wellness space. And so I, I knew I had a list in front of me of, okay, you guys have this smoking cessation program that you can do. You have this, you know, mommy wellness program or, you know. The gamut, and this was always news for for the patient in front of me. They didn't realize that they had all those resources. So I think that's one, just you know, not even knowing what's what's at their disposal. And in corporations too, and I think this is true with public health just in general. Talking about ROI, this is long term work. This is not a let's you know let's kind of fix this thing, put a bandit on band aid on it, and and then start to see the results. This takes a lot of time and effort. And I think a lot of times in the corporate setting, you know, quarterly audits and and that whole timeline, it just you know, it it just doesn't work that way. I don't think their brains work that way. So we have to figure out a way to be able to do this kind of long term work in that corporate setting. Yeah,
3: because right. Because what are the kinds of changes that are actually going to help? I don't think it is like this, you know, happy hour but maybe it is allowing for people to have a two-hour lunch so they can make it to a therapy appointment. You know, like what kind of changes, changes could you see in, in corporations that would actually help and not just be more like a non-helpful Band-Aid?
2: Yeah, you know, one of the one of the things that I talk about a lot is the concept of psychological safety and just how important it is to create a culture of psychological safety within an organization. I think that's one of the most, you know, basic foundational things that you can do because in a group setting, creating a safe environment where people feel okay to be vulnerable, where they feel okay to come forward and say, hey, I'm not doing well, I need help normalizing those conversations, I think that is the first step. And to do that, you need to, you know, on the organizational level, change the behavior, change the culture. It really is a cultural shift that needs to happen first.
3: We're going to take a quick break, but stick
2: around.
0: Just us. And we're
3: back. When you're working with individual clients, you know, what does that look like? You know, how many sessions are you having with them? What What is the breakdown of like the treatment plan? When do you start to see improvement?
2: Sure, sure. So I have a framework that I use uh, in my coaching and I call it REST. It stands for Revive, Strive and Thrive. So it's a three part framework and it's really to help folks overcome burnout, to, to handle stress and to restore energy. And so there are nine steps total as part of the framework. And, you know, one of the very first things, one of the first steps is to detect distress. You can't fix something unless you know that you're dealing with it, right? So being able to first identify it, to create the space, to secure space for yourself, to, to then begin the healing process, to seek support. That's another step too. You know, knowing who you can lean on in this time as you do the work. I take folks through these, through these steps in the coaching and you know, the work is never done. You end up learning the tools and the techniques and building the resilience as you go through. But you always, you know, you're always doing the work. I just uh, not too long ago, I was I was getting really stressed out and burned out with with some of the work I was doing. And a friend of mine pulled me aside and just told me, you know, Shelly, I think I think that restore routine step you talk about. I, th- I think you need to go back to that step. I think you need to do that some of that stuff <laughs> because it sounds like you could use it. So yeah, constantly going back, you know, constantly working on these different steps is what we typically do in, a, in the sessions.
3: And how is that different than more like what we think of as just like traditional talk therapy?
2: In the coaching that I do, you know, one, one thing that I bring to the coaching is design thinking or human-centered design. For folks who may not be familiar with design thinking, it is basically a problem-solving methodology. And it, leans into empathy and creativity to help problem solve and really figure out solutions that are tailor-made for the person you're trying to solve a problem for. And the reason why I fell in love with design is because I felt like it gave, it finally gave me some tangible tools that I could use with patients and with clients to help them, you know, figure out how to, you know, how to create, how to design a healthier lifestyle. Again, as a physician, you know, I can, I can rattle off, okay, you got to exercise X amount of minutes, you got to, you know, eat this, you got to do that, sleep X number of hours. You know, we, we all know these things. We all know things that we can do to be healthier, right? But the how, is always the hardest part. You know, how are you going to find more time to sleep? How are you going to incorporate more physical activity into your day? Those are really tough questions. And so I incorporate design thinking into the coaching that I do to be able to, you know, have people start to think outside of the box and and to really experiment with creating the lifestyle that they want to live. That's another important point, actually, the idea of experimenting versus failures you know a lot of times in this health and wellness industry we you know it's hard it's hard right they'll they'll sign up for a health program and because they're not seeing the results that they're told that they're supposed to get within 5 weeks or 10 days or you know they feel like they failed and and that's and it's just not the case right you want to be able to be in a mindset where you can experiment sure maybe one thing didn't work out but maybe if we just tweak tweak something here, we can, you know, we can adjust it to the lifestyle that you have. And so to make it work for you, that piece about not uh, failure, not being on the table, I think is an important one.
3: And do you ever do like role plays with your clients where maybe you've realized that what needs to happen is asking your boss to be able to work remotely two days a week? You know, would you ever like go through that role play of how to ask the boss or, you know, like the really practical
2: steps of it all? Sometimes, yes. The the one that I do more often, the role play that I do more often is having somebody pretend like they're their friend. And what I mean by this is, you know, we have certain things that we say to ourselves in our head. And I have them say those things out loud as if they're talking to a friend. It's just to kind of hear how toxic, a lot of times how toxic it is, you know, the messages that that they're telling themselves. So that role play I'll do quite often. Sometimes I'll do it in pairs. Sometimes I'll have, you know, another person sitting there. And so they'll sit, whatever's in their head, they'll say it to the other person. And, you know, sometimes folks just end up in tears because it's 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 really horrible. So the things that we tell ourselves sometimes are are so painful. And we don't realize it until we start to put the words to it and, and speak it.
3: Yeah. We've all said some,
0: some pretty awful things to ourselves, I think. <laughs> yes. Allison always says that, that you wouldn't say that to a friend. So why would you say that to yourself? I think instituting positive thinking is a really tricky thing to
3: do if you've never done it before. And it can feel really false. But I think one of the best first steps is getting rid of the negative speaking. Like it might not feel natural to be like, I love myself so much. But when you start to hear, I hate myself so much, being able to say, stop it. (laughs) You know, like, I feel like a lot of times that's a a more effective first step that doesn't feel as like forced or fake.
2: You're absolutely right. Being able to just notice that is the very first step. You got to you got to first be able to detect it. Otherwise, it's going to be forced. It's not going to work. And yeah, you know, another thing too, is that You need both positive and negative emotions, right? There's a reason why both exist in this world. It's not about completely turning off all the negativity and living in this la-la land of positivity. It's, you know, it's being able to to be on both sides and and being able to just become more resilient when, when the negativity does start to bubble up more and more.
3: Yeah. And as somebody who's, you know, my background is, is more in the psychology space. I'm so interested in in you coming from a, a medical background where you studied preventative medicine and lifestyle medicine. And how does that inform your practice versus coming at it from like a psychiatric or psychology background?
2: You know, one of the reasons why I choose to focus on this work is because of the impact it has on your physical health and well-being. You know, the, the stress, this burnout, mental health just in general, it creates this chronic inflammatory environment in our body. And because of that chronic inflammation, that's when we start to see things like high blood pressure, we start to see cholesterol levels go up, we start to have folks come in because their eczemas flaring up, or they're getting migraines, or they're having gut issues, or, you know, so... All of the instead of trying to chase all those individual symptoms, if if we can get to the root cause, if we can address the chronic stress that's in, you know, that's a part of their life, that's when I'm going to start to see the health outcomes that I want to see, you know. So that's the main reason for being able to for wanting to hone in on the stress piece in general.
0: What's preventative medicine? Like, how does that work for, you know, I feel like a lot of times people
2: come in and they're like, I'm in crisis. Yes, yes, it is. It's tough. Preventive medicine is a very unique specialty. Um, there aren't a lot of physicians who or medical students who go into the specialty because one, they don't know about it. Two, it's not well reimbursed. Preventive medicine is basically population health. So it's the intersection of medicine and public health and, you know, deals with what it, what does the health of of a population mean? What does that look like? So there's no money in that. We, we don't get, you know, we're not doing <laughs> surgeries. We don't get reimbursed for that. It's it's, it's again, it's long term hard work. And the ROI is not something that you see right off the bat. It's it's something that you see down the road. Yeah. So preventive medicine, it definitely it, it's such a great specialty, but we need more. We need more uh, physicians who, who go into this field and do this work. I, th- I think COVID is actually a really great example of this. Preventive medicine itself was born during the polio era because people realized that, oh my goodness, we need, pe- we need experts who understand the science, the medical science on a, on a doctor-patient level, but then we also need that person to understand it on a global scale of, okay, how do we make sure everyone stays healthy and well? So that preventive medicine was born out of that need for addressing population health.
3: And I know you originally said that burnout is is tied to work stress, but I wonder if this fear of getting sick and passing on this disease <laughs> to our loved ones has added to this, the everyday stress in these last two years that everyone is feeling. And if that's contributing to burnout too, you know, this fear that like, should I go to this party or will I get infected? What if I get infected? and I don't know. And then I spend it, th-? you know, like, is the COVID stress contributing to burnout as well?
2: Oh sure, sure. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, WHO the they specifically say that burnout is something that is uh, has to deal with occupational syndrome. It's in the workplace setting, but I have a feeling that they will, you know, amend that definition down the road because it's it's really hard to say that it's just limited to workplace wellness. <laughs> I mean, people are experiencing burnout all over in their personal and professional lives. So yeah, I think I think they'll probably change it, give give them a couple years, like they might be a little slow to it. But
0: yeah, I was gonna ask, like, is there such a thing as relationship burnout or family burnout?
2: Not a specific definition, you know, but definitely with, you know, within the coaching context, there those issues come up, but not, yeah, not as a specific syndrome itself.
0: What could that stem from? Like, how do you know if you're like, that's what you're experiencing, if it's not in the definition or you think of
2: burnout as just having to do with work? You know, I think it goes back to being able to detect distress just in general. And one of the most important things you can do is listen to your body. Your body knows before, before your mind does a lot of the time that, that you're under chronic stress and again those you know symptoms that i that i kind of mentioned earlier you know it looks different for different folks but maybe it's the migraines maybe it's the eye twitching that you have maybe it's the chronic <laughs> neck pain you know your body is it's your body is giving you these signals these red alerts to let you know hey this is you know you're not well. Something, something's huh. not, not jiving here. So there's something worth addressing. And so, yeah, being able to listen to your body is a really important piece in all of this.
0: Oh, I hate it. My, like, I'll be like, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then, like, my hair will fall out. And I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> yes. And so, are you working
3: in conjunction with people's primary doctors and maybe specialists that they have for different chronic conditions? Is that important for doing the holistic view treatment?
2: Yes, yes. Because of the, you know, the nature of the work that I do, it is long term work. It is, uh, it is something that's done in conjunction with other primary care doctors or other specialists. Um, You know, there are folks who have medical conditions. Like hypothyroidism, like IBS, and, and and they need medical treatment. So I'll I'll work in conjunction with their GI doctor or their neurologist or, you know, um, dermatologist to you know just kind of tackle it from from all fronts.
3: This is a biased question, but do you think that there's a, a big problem in our healthcare system and that it's become so specialized? And so then you're just treating everything individually, each symptom individually with a different doctor instead of looking at the big picture of of the whole person?
2: Yeah, I think it's really helpful to have experts because when somebody is dealing with a very complicated medical condition, that's when experts can be very helpful. But I think it has more to do with how patients are able to access healthcare, The way that the system is set up, it's just so difficult for you know all these experts to talk to one another and for right. somebody to get more coordinated care. I think that's where the that's where the real issue lies in in terms of this being able to access and and have you know have a team of 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 doctors who are treating you versus you having to be the point person going to each one individually.
0: It's so much of like point person and also advocating for yourself and also like needing to be on top of everything my Uncle currently has stomach cancer and he also has AIDS. He's had AIDS, HIV AIDS since 1985. And my aunt is like running herself ragged because none of the doctors talk to each other. So like nobody, you know, nobody who is on his AIDS team talks to anyone on the stomach team, who talks to anyone on the the physical therapy team. Like it's really wild to witness it. That like there's just, she's so much, have she's like having to, advocate and and do all this like matching with these people. And I just find it so strange that they wouldn't coordinate in any way. But it's all individual people who, I guess, feel like
2: they don't have time. I don't really know. It's crazy. And caregiver stress is such a real problem. It just adds to the whole uh, to the whole issue. But yeah, I you know, some of it has to do with time. Some of it has to do with malpractice becomes an issue. People, doctors don't want to step on other doctors' toes. They don't want to go, you know, they don't want to do something or say something that is outside of their profession or outside of their expertise because they're, you know, then they're in fear of getting sued. So there's that kind of legal component to it, that health insurance component to it. So yeah, it's Ugh. it really is complicated.
3: Before we move on, if somebody can recognize that they are having these signs of burnout, but they do not have the time or money to have professional help to deal with it. What are some like tips and tricks that you can give for people to sort of address it individually?
2: Sure, sure. So those some of those exercises that I mentioned earlier, like the the five whys, that's a really simple one. Um, in terms of, you know, being able to do self coaching or journaling, that's an easy one The you know, asking yourself, is it true that, that that's another exercise that that can be done on your own. I will say, though, being able to identify the folks, you know, in your life who you can lean on. That's a really important part of this, too. It is so hard to do any of this on your own and to go it alone. So you know, another thing, there are going to be people in your life that maybe you might want to not spend as much time with. You know, you might find them more draining than not, even though they might be a close family member or a coworker or, you know, a good friend. You got to really look out for yourself. And so being able to figure out, OK, who are those people I know I can lean on and have them not expect anything from me because I'm because I'm asking them for help. That's another important piece to this, too
0: Gabby just loves to shout
3: boundaries whenever they can I Um, do when you're saying people
0: that add stress and saying no to stuff I love it Yes, (laughs) we do love
3: saying no but I'm hoping with this question you'll say yes would you like to play a game show I would love to play
2: a game show yes
3: (laughs) Yay. Okay, so this game show is called Hypotheticals. You and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have and then let me know what you would do in that situation. Then I just decide whose answer I like the best. Got it. It's not fair. And and don't ask me why when we do this one.
0: <laughs> okay, don't ask you okay, got it. Don't don't do any of the five whys. Or, yeah, no five whys. Right, right, allowed no five why, I got it, got it. Fine. <laughs> okay, so our
3: first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? Your partner of fifteen years invents a time machine. <laughs> They travel back in time to the 1850s for two weeks and end up cheating on you with like 10 different people. But when they tell you about it, they are confused as to why you were upset because technically, at the time of the cheating, you weren't even born yet, and all of the people they cheated on you with are now dead.
0: Would you stay with this time traveling cheater? Why didn't they ask ahead of time? Ha 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 ha, fun. <laughs> They were just so focused on making the time machine work. It's hard work. That's true. It is interesting because it, it is technically before you met, quote unquote. Exactly. You know what I mean? You weren't even around. together yet. What is time? You know? why wow. I, I can't answer that, but. <laughs> can I use the time machine?
3: No, you're not allowed to because when they use it to get back, it blows up and malfunctions and they can never use it again.
0: Why did they go back to that era? Also, by the way, disease, huge in that era. Why yes. did they go, they come back with TB. Why did they go back to that era and not to like stop 9-11? That's a great question. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Just got real.
3: Because Gabby, they had an ancestor who was really big deal in their family lore, like a real matriarch who everyone always talked about. And they wanted specifically um to go meet that matriarch in, in their prime, which was a, the
0: eighteen fifty two. And was it like Back to the Future where the matriarch tries to get with them? No, that was not one of the 10 people they slept with. <laughs> then they're their own ancestor. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> Paradox. So you're
3: both telling me you would leave a time traveler who figured out how to build a time machine?
0: Yes, because the time machine's broken. Yep. All right, that's fair.
3: Well, if they had fixed it, they would have gone back in time and not told you about those 10 people. So what can you do? <laughs> <know? laughs> Okay. our next game. Is this a date? You go to the nail salon every two weeks to get a pedicure. And one time when you are there, you start talking to another person who is also getting a pedicure. You have a great conversation. When you show up two weeks later, that same person is already there in the chair next to yours. When you remark on the coincidence, they admit that they called the salon and asked to be booked at the same time as you since they had so much fun chatting last time. Is this a date?
0: This is my nightmare. <laughs> <sighs> you don't go to the nail salon to make friends, Gabby? Well, one, I stopped going. But also, no. Someone's starting to talk. Good Lord. Someone's starting to talk. When I did go to the nail salon, if someone started to talk to me, I'd be like, "This is the I'm trapped. This is the worst thing that's ever happened
2: to me. <laughs> Ugh. I'll say A for effort. You know, <laughs> I, I think it's cute. It's a date. It's a date. It's a date? (laughs) It's a date. My
0: eyes have bugged out of my head. It is not a date. Do you think you would kind of hold hands across
3: the pedicure chairs while you're getting your pedicures? No, because I'd be getting my manicure
2: too. That's true. Kind of make it happen.
0: This sounds horrible, honestly.
2: (laughs) When I got my manicure
3: last time at this new place, because I just moved, at one point the woman said, I love you to me. And it was really really confusing. I don't think she meant it. I think it might have just been like a colloquialism she uses. Anyway, it was a lot. But I hope it wasn't a date.
0: <laughs> I think it was a date. She jumped right to like three months in, six months in saying I love you.
3: But it was like in reference to me doing something that was like clearly wrong and or annoying. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like that mm. I wouldn't like relax my hand and then. Why
0: did they always try to get you when years ago when I used to get my nails done, they would always be like, relax your hand, relax your hand. And I'd be like, I am relaxed. Anyway, maybe Dr. Shelley can help me with that. (laughs) Sounds like a real
3: preventative medicine problem. But now, also now that you're open to having a date at the nail salon, pretty exciting. You never know what'll happen. Is there champagne?
0: Ooh, is it one of those? They brought champagne. (laughs) Oh, I can get down with that.
3: (laughs) Okay, our final game. Are you a terrible parent? You are an excellent caregiver, so when your 22-year-old daughter gets mono, you fly out to take care of her. You're only planning to stay one week, but she doesn't get any better, so you end up staying two months, waiting on her hand and foot, until one day you discover that she has been faking the illness for at least the past six weeks, so you will stay and care for her. Are you a terrible parent for being so easily conned by your own daughter? Yes. Yes
0: i am my mouth is my jaw has dropped i I am like standing here with my jaw my jaw dropped that whole that whole hypothetical wow there was a lot there parenthood is a scam
3: (laughs) i clearly crafted this because my poor parents just came out to take care of me for a week
0: and i wanted i was trying to manipulate them to stay longer it's like the opposite of a misery Or like opposite of Munchausen's.
2: Yeah.
0: Wow. (laughs) That's impressive.
2: Yeah.
3: So do you think you're a terrible parent?
0: Yeah. I'm trying to think of what it's like Munchausen's anti-proxy, like rather than bi-proxy. Is this a real? I got to (gasps) look this
2: up. (laughs) This is crazy. I love it. I don't think you're terrible. I think you're stupid. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're Mm -hmm. stupid, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'll go with that. It's a good point.
3: (laughs) It's amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. I feel like we learned a lot about how to hopefully take better care of ourselves. And where can people find out more about what you do and the
2: coaching that you offer? Sure. So Shellybomic.com that's where you'll find all the information. So if you're in New York City and want to become a patient of the practice, that information's there. And if you're not in the city and want to do coaching, that's also available to you there. So yeah, Shellybomic.com.
0: Wonderful. And you also do speaking and stuff. So people should know that if they, they want you to come to their corporation and, you know, do that. So
2: um, that's all there as well. Yes. Yes. Yeah, this was great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Oh, thank you. And thank you for sharing so much and being so vulnerable. I appreciate it. Thank you. Stick around after
3: the break. We'll be talking all about surgery, everyone's favorite uplifting topic.
0: Just between us. It's time for topic. X X X, 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 baby. Baby. Can you, before we get into the topic, can mm-hmm. you retell the story that you just told about the restaurant with water, please?
3: <laughs> okay, so during the break, I was talking about how I hate, <laughs> I hate when a restaurant tells you that they can't give you tap water and that they can only, you have to pay for bottled water because it's such bullshit. And one time I went to this restaurant with my parents in White Plains, New York, which is like a major city. And they were like, we don't have any water to give you. It's not safe. And I was like, what are you talking about? Just give us the sink water. And they were like, no, like we can't give you the sink water. They were acting like the sink water wasn't hygienic when like New York water is like excellent. And they were in the middle of a major city. And it was like, yeah, we don't have any we don't have any sources to give to the people you have to buy bottled water. And we were like, oh, fine. We bought bottled water. And then a few years later, that restaurant burned down.
0: And I started laughing so hard because I was like, because they didn't have any water.
3: Yeah, it felt very much like karma. Like they they were like, we don't have water. Oh, you don't have water? Fire.
0: Yeah. And I was like, then I said, imagine them just trying to put out the fire, like throwing orange juice and milk and <laughs> and coffee at the fire. Look, I wouldn't wish
3: arson on anyone. And I don't know if it was arson. I, I think it was just a fire. Well, but- you just
0: said it was arson. Like, you, you know, like when they're questioning someone and the person's just <laughs> missing. Too but much. then the person goes, I don't know why they were murdered. That's you right now. I didn't burn this place down. I don't even arson. remember the name. Arson. Interesting. Oh, boy. I
3: wouldn't wish fire on anyone. But I do feel like that was a bit of a comeuppance.
0: Interesting. Anyway. Anyway. So we were going to talk about surgery because Allison had major knee surgery and, has, and is seems to be in pain. Yeah. Guys, this was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Why? What do you mean? You needed it, didn't you? Well, it's so funny.
3: So I got the knee surgery because I have a genetic disposition to my kneecap not wanting to stay in place. And I would gotten this surgery on my left leg when I was 17 years old, and it was horrible And then I blocked that out. And then starting February of 2021, my knee dislocated. And then I had two subluxations. And so I was like, I think I got to get surgery on my right leg. And my mom was like, Allison, like the surgery is going to be really bad and intense. And you should really prepare for that. And I was like, "Um, things are different now. Medicine's different. Surgery's different. I'm different. Oh no. And then this was this has been a fucking nightmare. But I think that my brain was protecting me because it wouldn't have done me any good to be freaking out about the surgery for the weeks leading up to it. Mm-hmm. And I might not have done it. But because my brain it's like people who like have horrible labors but then want to have another child so they forget yeah. how horrible the labor was. I feel like very connected to that.
0: Yeah. Where like
3: my brain was just like, No, it'll be fine. It's not fine, but it's getting better.
0: What do you have to do? What's what's the what's the struggle had to move, to walk, to do anything.
3: Part of it is just that, like, my knee is so swollen and bruised that, like, the bruise is very, very painful still. So I'm hoping that once that gets better. But they said that when they this is just the trigger warning for surgery stuff. They said that when they opened me up, that my patella was just completely to the side. Oh, <laughs> and it, like, no. wasn't, it wasn't in the right place at all. Oh, no. (laughs) So that makes me feel better, though, because then I'm like, oh, I should have like, you know, because there was definitely a part of me, I was like, do I even need this surgery? Is this so stupid that I'm putting myself and everyone through this? But when they told me that I was like, yeah, I probably needed this.
0: (laughs) Oh, my God. That sucks. Yeah.
3: But what's hard is it's not just the knee pain, right? It's like, being on these pain meds that like make me sick. So I've like thrown up twice because of them and like <gasps> having to like sleep on my back at night cause I can't sleep on my side. And that just like causing me back pain, you know, like it's just like this whole, the whole body gets so thrown yeah. where it, it makes it more difficult.
0: When are you expected to recover? Well, recover is such a, such a complex word. I, you know, oh,
3: no. I'm going to be on my knee brace and on crutches for six weeks Okay. So I'm like one week into that. I think the goal would be like within six months to be fully back, where I can play tennis and pickleball and like do everything I want to do. Um, oh, but I man. think these first few weeks are, are are definitely the worst. But I'll I'll get through them.
0: <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, that's Mal has like a small went and got a top surgery revision, mm-hmm. and it was just a little tiny like cut, and so I can't imagine. Like, a, and they're bruised and everything. I can't imagine like that. that much. I don't remember. I had a breast reduction and I remember looking at them at, right after I got it done and being like, Franken boobs, because there was like so many, they sew your nipple back on and everything. And so I was like, look at these. These are hilarious. But I do. I was in a lot of pain. But you're right. I immediately forgot. Like, I can't think back to what it felt like. So I think it's like a protective thing.
3: It must be that your brain does. But yeah, like I keep being like, oh, I can't wait to laugh about this. Like I can't, you know, like when I'm in these moments, I'm like, I'm like, oh, yeah, at some point I'll be able to be like, remember how bad that was?
0: Yeah, (laughs) That's why I'm like worried. I don't know if I want to get top surgery. I might never get it. But because also I just like in my mind, I'm like, you dumb bitch, like you got breast, a breast reduction, and now you're gonna pay the same amount of money again to get taught like you they should just honestly they should let me do it for free because (laughs) (laughs) or upgrade where you don't just pay the full price yeah they should let me do it i mean it's what's my warranty like come on so i don't know but and i think actually my insurance might cover it but i'm like it's so much worse like because i didn't have drains this will have drains like Mm. this is like a whole a whole goddamn thing So I don't know if I want, I'm like, I don't know if I want to do it.
3: I feel like with these decisions, it just like comes to you one day. Like when my knee first dislocated in February last year, I was like, oh my God, I don't want surgery. I don't want surgery. I don't Mm -hmm. want surgery. And then at a certain point I was like, I need surgery. I want the surgery, you know. So The
0: actual surgery is like, I just went to sleep and I woke up. Like you're not like awake. Well, that's the whole other
3: part, right? Is like the lead up to the surgery And, like, with the COVID of it all, like, nobody could be with me in the pre-op room. Mm -hmm. And so, like, just, like, having to, like, honestly, the stuff of, like, getting the IV put in was, like, terrifying. And then Mm -hmm. just also when they started doing the anesthesia, it was incredibly painful Mm -hmm. and through my hand and arm. Like it was so painful. And I just like was like, oh, my God, I hope I pass out soon because this sucks. (gasps) But it's a lot of just like being able to tell yourself that like you're okay
0: and not emotionally freaking out on top of it. Yeah. can I tell you something funny. Mal woke up from their top surgery. (laughs) I wasn't with them at the time, but we were texting as friends. But they woke up. And they, the nurse was petting their head and going, you did so good, baby. You did so good, baby. And Aww. then Malik woke up and was like, and the woman <laughs> petted Mal's stomach and went, you're going to have to get used to being a little marshmallow now. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh That's my god! Not okay. That's so not okay. But I also now I because they're so I I mean obviously I think Mal is the cutest. So I was like every time I see them I'm like a little marshmallow. Oh my god!
3: <laughs> you were that nurse in disguise, just so desperate was, yeah, to be close to them. Disguise.
0: What a good little marshmallow you are now. <laughs> oh my
3: god! But the other big part of it all is like is that you ha- you need so much help. You know that like you have to be okay with like asking for help and like having you know my parents are out here the first week which was amazing but now it's just me and John and like I'm just giving him orders all day long and like praying that he's not mad at me (laughs) as he stares at me across the room right now (laughs) John are you mad? Are you mad John? He says no but I don't know how convincing it was (laughs) (laughs) but it's exhausting for him too right? It's like it's not just me like I keep being like, who's this worse for me or John? <laughs> you know, cause right. like his whole life is now just like caretaking for me doing mm-hmm. all of this stuff. He has to do handle all the dogs by himself. He's like, yeah. we also just moved into a new house. He's dealing with all of that stuff. Like mm. we talked about in the interview, but like caretaker fatigue is like a huge thing. Yeah. And so it's like been a lesson in like learning to accept help, learning how to ask for help, learning how to like be reasonable in what you do and, don't need when you need, you know, when do I need to be like, John? And when do I need, mm-hmm. when
0: can I like wait five
3: minutes? You know, yeah. that kind of thing. It's, it's <laughs> tough to lose
0: control over what you can do. I think about that a lot. Like even like aging, like our neighbor, mm-hmm. Dita, who we're, we're close with, she's sick. She's older, obviously, like she's 79, which is not even that old, but she has terminal cancer. And so she went from like coming over and cramming her way into our house every day to now she's confined to a bed. And Mal and her are, like, best friends. And they Mal goes over there every day, like, takes care of her, goes over there every day. Like, is – and it's, like, a funny relationship because, like, hospice people and everyone will be like, and you are? And Mal's, like, her friend? Like, I don't know. Her neighbor. Not, yeah, neighbor. We're not, like, related to her in any way. But we've been doing all this stuff. But she's – is such an independent person. And now she's, like, confined to this bed and she's – like really resentful of the whole situation, which is, my uncle's the same way. My uncle being sick, like he's like, most of what they're both frustrated about is not being able to do things on their own. Yeah. And he's still trying. I was following him around the pool. He was like, he can like barely maneuver. And he was trying to clean his own pool. I didn't want to be like, no, because Mm -hmm. he, so I was just walking behind him talking to him trying to pretend like oh I'm just having a conversation in the back of my mind I'm like if he fucking falls in this pool but like I have to you know but it's almost like pride and so like you have to kind of put aside your pride sometimes to just ask for help but like that's really hard for people
3: yeah and it's you know I think there's also such a difference between when you know something will get better and when something is terminal or chronic Mm -hmm. Um, so like a big thing that's helping me get through this is being like it won't be like this forever but for a lot of Mm -hmm. people it will be like that forever and and so i can't you know that's a whole nother thing to have to to tackle mentally on top of the physical pain of it all
0: yeah dita knows hers is terminal steven's is not like we don't know he could get better right so he's got this weird hope where you know the scans come back and it's like nothing it's like nothing's gotten worse and so that's a good news but he's also like but nothing's gotten better so that's bad news so he's in this liminal space where he doesn't know what's going to happen. Whereas like Dita at least can accept, okay, this is like the path. I Sometimes I go, in a year, this won't bother me. You know what I mean? Mm. Like you have to like project, but he doesn't know. So it's kind of this, but he's also like lived with that uncertainty for so long that I wonder if he's just, that's where he lives, you know? Probably has more of a tolerance for it than most people. I think so, yeah. But I don't want to insult him by doing too much. So I'm just walking behind him while he cleans the pool, trying to pretend like I'm not making sure he doesn't fall, trying to come up with like fake topics to be like, yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, just like, yeah, I I would do this with anybody. I would walk behind them. No big deal.
3: Yeah, I'm very lucky that I have no problem asking for help from like the people closest to me. That's great. I have a harder time like telling a friend to come over. But like with my parents and John, I'm very much like, I need this now, please. (laughs) That's the other thing is sometimes the best thing you could do is let somebody help you.
0: Yeah, we were like, shocked. We were like, I'm so sorry we're making you do this. And she was like, nobody's making me do anything. That was nice. Melissa, well, you want to come in and share
3: your thoughts? I have a question. Yeah. yeah. Allison, can you share your shaving story?
0: My shaving story?
3: Didn't your nurse shave off your pubes or oh, something?
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, this what? Is just- <laughs> no, okay. So this is <laughs> Okay. Oh, you made a big deal over the marshmallow comment. Meanwhile, a nurse shaved your pubes. No, a nurse did not shave my pubes. A nurse almost
3: shaved my pubes. I went into the pre-op room. <laughs> I went to the pre-op room and they were like, okay, take everything off and put the gown on, but leave your underwear on and whatever and then get in the bed. And I was like, "Okay." And this nurse comes up. Also, it's like so wild because nobody knows why you're there, or what's happening. Right, Every single right, person right. is like, "What are you getting done? What's the score? Right. What leg? What the, you know?" And you're like, "Oh, I feel n- nervous." <laughs> right? Like this
0: one on your knee. I literally right? had
3: to write yes and draw an arrow on my right yep, leg. Yep, yep, yep. And so this woman comes over and she's like, "Okay, I'm going to shave you for the surgery." And I was like, "Okay," thinking she was like going to shave my knee. And then she was like, "Oh, Oh, so you're wearing underwear? And I was like, Yeah. And they were she was like, okay, so I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to shave shave your pubic hair. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I was like, I I was like, well, I don't know how medicine works. Like maybe they're putting in something in my upper thigh. I don't know. And then she was like, it's weird that you're wearing your underwear. And I was like, Well, the other nurse told me to keep my underwear on. And then she asked, and it became apparent that the nurse who wanted to shave me thought I was having hip surgery and that oh. when you have knee surgery there's no reason to shame of your pubic hair. <laughs> so thank god we like figured it out before she started shaving my pubes so good <laughs> so that good. is so funny and then we all had a big laugh about it
0: jesus christ <laughs> ah so I almost got a,
3: I almost got a free shave, but I didn't.
0: Oh, my God. But it's
3: so funny, right? Because I don't know what the fuck. If she tells me she's got to shave my head, I'd be like, okay. <laughs>
0: I got no, surgery works. ask questions, please. <laughs> Good Lord. You wake up, they've done surgery to your hip. You're like, no. I, I know, right? That was wild. Yeah, yesterday I went to my post-op and they were like, okay, we want to show you
3: the pictures from the surgery. And then she was like, <gasps> oh, no. So what happened was someone printed out the same pictures for four different patients and clipped them to their charts, which is like a huge violation of
0: HIPAA because they could be showing me someone else's pictures. (laughs) They're like, so we've got to figure that out and we'll get back in touch. The doctor that did Mal's revision, they had to just cut a little bit of skin off because they had a dog ear. Mm -hmm. And Mal said, I want to be there so bad and I wasn't allowed because of COVID. And Mal said that he put the skin on the table and then said, look, that's your skin. And then Mal looked at it and then he stretched it for them. Oh my
3: God. <laughs> Melissa's gonna throw up. All right, we should wrap this up before we totally. Okay, lose sorry, Melissa. sorry, sorry.
0: What do we rate this episode? <laughs> I'll give it 70 out of 40
3: meeting the parent's parents. Nice. Yeah.
0: I will give it three out of one avoided burnouts. Yeah. And I'm going to give it seven out of six arsons. No, I didn't. I didn't do that. What an arsonist would say. <laughs> well, thank you to Dr. Shelly Baumick for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa D. Mods, Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Bohm, Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Tracy Soren. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or youtube.com slash show. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, Allison has a substack emotional support lady. I'm at patreon.com slash Gabby Dunn. On Instagram, you can follow Allison Raskin, Gabby Road, JBU podcast, and she is not Melissa. Bye!